Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Okay. In three. <clears throat> Shh, Scott. Don't breathe heavy or make noise. I have to do both. <laughs> His, mic's not on. His mic's not on. Okay. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, the leading candidates for the U.S. Senate seat squared off in Los Angeles last night. It is their final debate before the election, but it's unclear whether any of them did anything to shake up the overall dynamic of the race. One thing we do know, all three Democrats, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, and Barbara Lee, are giving up their House seats. And the congressional district races to replace them are pretty competitive with Democrats squaring off against each other. Joining us now to talk about all that and more is Melanie Mason, politics reporter for Politico, joining us from a very sunny place by the looks of the room you're on there in Zoom. Hey, Mel. It's always sunny in Los Angeles. Uh, That's not true. We know that. It's actually been quite raining, but it's sunny today and we're thrilled about it. Excellent. Well, let's begin with this debate last night. It was uh, co-sponsored by NBC Los Angeles and Telemundo, and it was kind of billed as an opportunity for the candidates to speak to Latino voters um, who are, according to polls, very very much undecided in this race. And I'm just wondering, first of you, Marisa, did did you feel that they did anything to move the needle with Latino voters one way or the other? say so. I mean, there was definitely some specific questions about that. And I think the candidates tried. But I mean, you know, the the moderator who asked the question said it pretty bluntly. There is a sense among many Latinos that Democrats use us during election cycles. And I don't know that anything I mean, I don't know that anything you could say on that stage would help with that. Part of this is like the lack of outreach, the lack of Spanish language ads and other sort of communications. Um, And it is a little surprising given not just Latinos, but in general, like a good, I don't know, fifth or quarter of the electorate is telling pollsters they're still undecided. Yeah. And Mel, this was a chance for them to talk about the immigration bill, the bipartisan bill uh, that died that, uh, you know, the Senate passed and the House refused to take up. And it was a chance for all of them to get on the record, the Democrats and the Republicans, Steve Garvey. Um, Any surprises there? I mean, they were pretty much all opposed to, you know, saying that they would have voted against it if they'd been in the Senate. Right. The border bill was a bust. Um, I mean, that was the one sort of point of unanimity on the stage. Uh, I did think it was interesting, the tone that you heard from the Democrats in particular. And I think, Marisa, to your point that the questioner perhaps led them to taking on this tone, but there was a lot of contrition, sort of them having to fess Mm -hmm. up as Democrats, that Democrats have not delivered. And I thought that it was actually quite interesting, the fact that um, very few of them actually then did the pivot of, but this is why Latino voters should have 
faith in me. It felt like there was in some way kind of like a therapy session of sort of acknowledging where they had come up short in the past. Um, I did think that there was a point where where Schiff out of all of them, Congressman Schiff, I think, did the most adept job of sort of maneuvering then back to making this a choice between Democrats and Republicans, which, of course, is the theme he has been trying to sort of hammer home in this whole race, talking about how Republicans would never be partners to Democrats um, in trying to see comprehensive immigration reform. But just the fact in itself that it seemed like it was a somewhat Democratic apology tour was was interesting from all three of those Democrats. And, the, you know, they all, like you said, even Steve Garvey said he would have voted against that border bill, which is, you know, a huge priority of the White House and some Democrats. So I think it shows the difference in Democratic politics in a state like California than in a lot yeah. of the U.S. And I do wonder, you know, this was aimed at Latino voters, and I think it was simulcast in Spanish with translation, obviously. Um, you know, so that might have influenced the way they answered the question, because, you know, people, uh, Latinos like uh, Senator Alex Padilla were very much opposed to the deal. Uh, I think Democrats pretty much gave them everything they wanted, which is what they're, I think, hoping to hang around their necks come the fall, saying, hey, we gave you all you wanted and all you insisted on, and you, you guys still voted no. Yeah. Well, let's move on, Scott, to another Democrat on Democrat uh, <laughs> yeah. race. So this is uh, the race to replace uh, Katie Porter. This is in the uh, 47th Congressional District. And, you know, Porter barely hung on to that seat uh, when she was up for re-election in 2022. Scott Baugh, the Republican, came within just a few percentage points. And, you know, Scott Baugh, in this particular time around, he's running again against a couple of Democrats, uh, State Senator Dave Min and Joanna Weiss, who is an attorney down in uh, Orange County. And these two have been going after each other on the ads. Uh, we're going to play a little bit of uh, both of them in a minute. But you have to wonder, like, the, the big winner here looks to be Scott Baugh, the Republican. I mean, at least in the short term, right? There's nothing that any candidate likes more than sort of sitting back and watching uh, two other potential contenders tear each other down of the opposite party. I mean, I think the fear for Democrats in this race and some others that we'll be discussing in the coming week is that this weakens whoever, you know, whichever Democrat comes out of it. Um, I mean, let's let's maybe hear one of those attack ads. Yeah, let's just, so this is an ad that Joanna Weiss played. We should say she is a newcomer. She's an attorney uh, down in Orange County. Uh, and she uh, laid into Dave Min, the state senator, with uh, kind of a, well, we'll just let, let's just play it. Min drove drunk, lied to the police, and endangered innocent lives. Joanna Weiss is the Democrat we can trust. So, Mel, uh, obviously this is something that uh, goes back to a drunk driving incident with Dave Min up in Sacramento. He was um, placed on three years of probation. That ad goes on to say that uh, he's going to be, you know, on probation if he gets to the House of Representatives. Um what do you make of that attack? Is that something that has legs, do you think, with voters? Well, I think we'll find out in a couple of weeks, right? But I mean, this has been something that the Weiss campaign has certainly been hammering on for months now, right? I mean, really ever since that DUI arrest back in last spring, I mean, that elevated Weiss's campaign in a way that, quite frankly, wasn't there before. Min was the pick of Katie Porter, who was leaving that seat. Um, and it kind of seemed like this, this certain party establishment was coalescing around him. He then gets this arrest and the question is, is like, is he electable now? And in some ways, I think that if you're your men's campaign, you must be figuring they're getting so much incoming on this attack right now. If he makes it out of the primary, maybe the silver lining is, is like voters might be sort of um, saturated. Over it. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Old, They've news. Heard it. Old news. This is it one of the benefits of the question. March primary, right? It's like <laughs> yeah. such a long road. I'm sure it doesn't between... feel like a benefit to Dave Min at the moment. But well, let's hear another ad. And this one's a little more complicated. This is an ad that Dave Min's campaign ran against Joanna Weiss. And it has to do 
with some work that her husband, who's also a lawyer, did defending the archdiocese in Orange County. Why is Joanna Weiss attacking Dave Min? To hide the fact that she and her husband made millions defending Catholic priests found guilty of molesting children in Orange County. And so we should say that Joanna Weiss's campaign has put about a quarter of a million dollars of her own money, their own money, into this. And the allegation is that that was money that was made by her husband defending child molesters in their in their, the way they would describe it. So, Mel, what do you think? Is this this is obviously fair game? Uh, it does. Uh, it is nasty. It, it is something that is relevant and probably was very much in the news in Orange County when it was happening. Yeah, I mean, I think we should first say just to to put it out there that the Weiss campaign really strongly pushes back on this attack line from men. They say that her the money that she's put in from the campaign was actually because they refinanced their house. And so there's there's lots of kind of like ticky tack disputes about how real this all is, all of which is going to go way over the, the heads of the people who are actually getting pounded by these ads. I think that that to like pull way back for a second, I mean, Dave Min actually has experience running really hard fought campaigns in this area. In fact, against Katie Porter herself in 2018. They had a super nasty primary in 2018 where he again had actually gotten most of the party establishment. She ends up coming ahead, but it was pretty uh, pretty ugly for a while. And yet Katie Porter still goes on to win that seat in the, the general and was able to hold it even in this pretty tough political environment. So yes, there's Democratic pearl clutching about are these two Democrats bloodying each other up too much for them to go on and face Scott Baugh in the general. But it's kind of the perpetual primary lament that then seems to fade away. I think once you get towards a Democrat versus Republican race, it seems to focus people's minds. So it's kind of just Democrats are white knuckling it through the next couple weeks. Exactly. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue talking about some of the more competitive House races, including the one to replace Adam Schiff in uh, down in Los Angeles. And there's another one where Republicans are trying to pick off the Democratic incumbent. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos and Melanie Mason, 
from Politico. Well, let's talk about uh, the other race to replace Adam Schiff. This is a seat down in the Burbank area. And 15 people, including three fairly well-known Democrats, uh, Assemblywoman Laura Friedman, Senator uh, Anthony Portentino, uh, the city attorney down there, Mike Fuhrer, as well as Ben Savage, the actor from uh, Boy Meets World, uh, are, are vying for that seat. <laughs> Hadn't heard that name in a while. Uh, I know, yeah. And so anyway, this is this is a solid Democratic uh, seat that is not going to be up for grabs but in it by any means. Um, Mel, how do you how do you see the dynamic in that race? It certainly isn't as nasty as what we were just talking about in the race to replace Katie Porter. Definitely not as nasty and not as expensive, which actually sort of surprised me yeah. given the fact that you have so many kind of established politicians who have raised a healthy amount of money. Um, but this is what happens when these seats, which only come up once every two decades or so, when, when Adam Schiff decides to run for Senate, Everybody jumps in the pool. Everybody sees this as their opportunity because these safe blue Democratic seats are the place where if you get in, you're kind of guaranteed an ability to stay there for as long as you want, build up that seniority, build up a profile like Adam Schiff was able to do in the House. And so it's not surprising to me that you have so many people jumping in. I think what surprised me about this race is that it hasn't been as nasty as maybe it it could have been. Instead, it seems like it's been a lot of all politics is local, sometimes even hyper-local. This is a district where you have specific communities. It has West Hollywood. So there's the LGBT community. There's a really um, strong Armenian American uh, uh, community in the Glendale Burbank area. And so what you're seeing are these these politicians, many politicians who are all running, trying to sort of tailor their individual pitches to these small kind of micro communities, but powerful micro communities within this district. So you're not seeing the like on air slugfest that you're seeing in California 47, for example. Yeah, and it really does get back to like I think how challenging these are, both the Orange County seat we were talking about and something like this. If you are a Democrat in in one of these districts, like it, in some ways it's almost like you're looking at personalities as much as policy because all of these Democrats are strong on, you know, gun control, on abortion rights, on and, and there's always these efforts to sort of like undercut them. Are you really that strong on abortion rights? But like at the end of the day, I mean it would not, I don't think, from a like baseline uh, sort of place, make a difference in Congress where they're going to vote. Totally. And I think that, you know, like any election is about turnout. Do your people vote uh, in the election? And I'm wondering if Portentino maybe has a bit of an advantage there. He's, of course, the favorite of organized labor. Um, he's got more money than the others. And, you know, it really helps, I think, especially in what could be a low turnout election like a March primary to have, you know, boots on the ground, so to speak, people knocking on doors, making phone calls for you. Um, but again, you know, I think we who, who cover politics all the time overestimate, Marisa, like how well known people who right. serve in Sacramento are. Yeah, like I hear Portentino and I think about him, you know, running the approps committee, you know, the purse strings in Sacramento. I think about the really, um, I think, hard work he's done around gun control. But yes, this is probably even in his own district, not a household name to everybody. Um, And so it is fascinating. I mean, I don't know, Mel, have you seen like the like that labor is actually coming out for him in that district? Have we seen any ground game that we know of? You know, I don't think that anything that like stands out to me as abnormal or like a huge push. I mean, in terms of the district overlap, Assemblywoman Laura Friedman actually, I think, has a little bit more of that geographic area. She was also a Glendale City Council member prior to being the legislature. So there is a lot of all, like I said, all politics is is local. Um, But I I think that um, 
a lot of it just, I think, has to do with, you know, do people feel like they recognize them? Do they know them? Can they run into these folks? Because Formentino has been a figure for so long, there actually are a lot of personal uh, relationships that he has in the community. He, in particular, has also made a ton of outreach to the Armenian-American community, even though he himself is not Armenian. He's kind of made himself honorary in a way, and I think that that has been key. One other thing I'll note, though, which I thought was so interesting, Mike Fuhrer, former city attorney um, who was running, he has the endorsement of somebody pretty powerful, Mayor Karen. Bass. She's been featured in his ads. But when I was talking to somebody in that district about whether that's a big help, he said, well, sure, maybe the parts of the district that's L.A. City, where she actually represents. But if you're in Glendale or Burbank, which are outside the, the borders of the city of L.A., any association with the city of L.A. is actually <laughs> not helpful. Not so helpful. Like, we don't want any of that. Yeah. So I thought that was a fascinating sort of double edged sword of somebody as, as well liked as Karen Bass. Maybe not the endorsement that he's hoping for. Yeah. Laura, Laura Friedman had an interesting, memorable ad. We were looking at it Marisa before ad, yeah. where she, I guess she used to be quite a, a pool player. And it shows her making some nice bank shots in a, what looks like a, you know, maybe a pool hall or something. And she's also the only woman running. And uh, you have to think that can't hurt. In, in 2024. Well, I think the gender politics of a lot of these races are fascinating because you see, you know, like back to the Orange County race, um, Joanna Weiss was, you know, endorsed by Emily's List. They put in a big ad buy on her behalf. Um, Laura Friedman also got the Emily's List support. This is, of course, a group that tr- helps run um, pro-choice Democratic women, um, Demo- like Democratic women in general for, for seats. And I think that you know, there there is this sense that, like, if you look around, I mean, Adam Schiff is in the lead for the U.S. Senate seat, long held by Dianne Feinstein, that she won during Year of the Woman. We've seen a lot of retirements from Congress in recent years of high-profile female members from California. Um, and yet, if you look at, say, endorsements, like, that does not seem to be driving the way that people, you know, like Nancy Pelosi on down consider who's the best candidate for these seats. And I, I do find it a little ironic, you know, just last week, we were talking about Barbara Boxer endorsing Adam Schiff. Yeah, so yeah. I don't know how far that kind of identity politics can actually get you in these crowded races. Well, let's move down the road a bit, uh, down to the 45th Congressional District. Michelle Steele is the incumbent Republican there. This is a seat uh, that Biden won by five, uh, by six points, rather. It's a plus five Democrat. So there's a little bit of a Democratic edge, but it also has a plurality of Asian American voters. Little Saigon is there. And, you know, Michelle Steele is pretty well known down there. I know you've, you know, been down there talking with her, in the, you know, over, over the years. We've had her on the show. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering, Mel, like, one of her opponents is, in fact, uh, the daughter of a uh, refugee from Vietnam. This is uh, Kim Nguyen Penaloza. Do you think that that how do, how do you think ethnicity, racial background, immigration, you know, history, all that stuff plays out in a district with so many, uh, you know, Asian-Americans? Oh, it's huge. And I think that in addition to Kim Nguyen Penaloza, there's also Derek Tran, who's another Democrat who's winning, who's running. He also is the uh, child of Vietnamese immigrants. I mean, I think the AAPI vote in this district is going to be key. And that's a story that's going to have national repercussions. I mean, if we look back to the special election in New York just a couple of weeks ago um, or last week, who knows? Time is the flat circle. But the Asian American vote in that race was key for Democrats. And that's been something that's caused a lot of angst among Democrats in the last couple of cycles is feeling like they were losing ground among 
among this key constituency in places like New York. And Orange County was another example. Michelle Steele has been one of these Republicans who's been building this program to engage AAPI voters in Orange County, along with Congresswoman Young Kim is another example, for a long time now. And I think that there is a sense among Democrats that they can put up somebody who's also from the community, who has that credibility with these key voters, maybe they can stem some of the losses or at least the kind of slowing down that they've been seeing among this key constituency. Um, so that's definitely what I would bookmark for the fall. I think that there's going to be a lot of political watchers across the country that'll be looking to California 45 as sort of a weather vane for where the AAPI vote might be. Yeah, it's always interesting, though, that district. I mean, I do think Michelle Steele is a pretty singular candidate. She's managed, as you said, to continually do well in a district where she has a disadvantage on voting, uh, you know, reg- voting registration in terms of Republicans and Democrats. And she's a pretty far right Republican. Her votes, uh, her, you know, her husband, Sean Steele, is an RNC chairperson. He's very, very like conservative aligned with Trump. And I I think that what Michelle Steele has always excelled at is that retail politics, to your point, Mel, like that ground game, making people feel like they're connected to her. They may not agree with her on every issue, but I think she's done a decent job. And again, you do see, you know, I think neither of these candidates, Derek Tran or Kim Nguyen Penaloza, have raised a ton of money. Um, And I think, you know, again, they could be cannibalizing kind of each other's votes and support because you really do need to coalesce, you know, in a year like this, in a district like that. There's a lot on people's minds. Yeah. And, you know, Mel, we're going to see this across the country where the DCCC uh, is going to try to hang on the necks of Republican candidates and incumbents, votes that they've taken if they're in the House now, whether it's for Mike Johnson to be Speaker, a pretty right-wing Republican. Um, In this case, do you think something like that or her very anti-abortion position, uh, is that going to hurt her? I was just to say, ding, ding, ding. I think the choice issue is going to be a huge one. In fact, there was the fact that she continued to co-sponsor what effectively is a national abortion ban. The New York Times wrote about this, uh, I believe, a couple of weeks ago. And very promptly, we heard the DCCC sort of like elevating the story. They wanted everybody to know that even in the post-Dobbs landscape, even after California voters voted to enshrine more abortion protections in its state constitution, she had signed on to co-sponsor what is effectively a very sweeping national abortion ban. I think that that is absolutely a message that is going to carry through. Now, to Brice's point, are is the Democrat whichever Democrat emerges as her opponent going to be the most effective messenger about that, that remains to be seen. You know, Kim Wynn, she just gave birth, literally, like weeks ago, just gave birth. Um, In some ways, she would be a very compelling person to be kind of going up, talking about reproductive health, reproductive rights uh, against this incumbent uh, congresswoman. But as Maurice alluded to, she has just been a terrible fundraiser. I mean, just a shockingly bad fundraiser. And so is the fact that the National Party going to have to come in and bail her out, spend a lot of money on her behalf if she does make it past March, um, maybe that makes them a little bit less enthused about her as a potential candidate going into November. You know, what I do wonder about is, you know, we don't know, of course, how the March primary is going to turn out for the Senate race or anything else. But if there are two Democrats who come in one, two, um, I'm wondering how that could affect Republican turnout in November. You know, if there's fewer things to get Republicans, we say, to the polls, but really to fill out a ballot. Yeah. I mean, there's so many 
like sort of factors here, though. I mean, Trump is going to be on the ballot, we think, <laughs> as of now, uh, looking very likely. Um, and I do think that that in itself could be a draw for a lot of Republicans. Um, you know, I, I, again, it, it's such a fascinating mix when you look at these congressional districts, because more so than almost any other race I think we all cover, they do sort of tend to swing with the national political wins, right? We often see big wins for one party and then a sort of reversal of that a few cycles later. Um, But who the candidate is matters, right? Like who the individual person is in each of these districts. And so I think that that is something like with the CD45 race, where Democrats, I think, have an opportunity to really hammer Michelle Steele and dig in, especially given, you know, the Alabama ruling this week on IVF and embryos, the constant sort of drumbeat we're hearing from the Trump campaign and other Republicans about what they would do. Um, you you know, what you see in a lot of these races, someone like Scott Baugh down in uh, the Katie Porter seat, very careful to say, oh, no, I wouldn't vote for a national abortion ban. But he says it, life begins at conception. Yeah. It, and so it's like you can tell that there's a concern among Republican candidates that that could potentially really, you know, that could be the big challenge. Um, but they're, you know, they don't want to abandon their base either. Yeah. Well, let's continue going south. Uh, the 49th Congressional District, uh, that's where Mike Levin, uh, it's uh, southern Orange County, northern San Diego County. It's it's a, it's a definitely a purple district, Mel. It's plus three Democrat with the redistricting. There are four Republicans running against Levin. He's outraised them all. Um, what do you think? Is that, that one still is a likely Democrat uh, outcome, according to the Cook Political Report. But, you know, do you have any sense that Republicans have, uh, you know, reason to be optimistic there? I mean, I think it is definitely a race that's on the bubble. In fact, as I have my sort of like cheat le- cheat sheet list of, of races, they did my on the bubble category. I mean, I think that Levin has been seen as somebody by Republicans who could be vulnerable. But I think, Marisa, to your point, it, it's a little bit more about like, what are the national wins, right? I mean, he is, I think that as a, as a Democratic candidate, he is a good fit for that district, particularly on his environmental record. I mean, this is a district that is along the coast. And so for him to talk about environmental protections, climate change, I mean, that is still Stuff that I think even moderate Republicans tend to be more aligned with a Democrat on that. Republicans, I know, are pretty optimistic, particularly about um, one of these candidates, Margarita Wilkinson, who is spending um, a lot of her own money on on ads and pretty compelling ads at that. She tells a story about how her own family um, in Mexico had suffered under violence because of the cartels. And it's pretty gripping. And I do think that she is, again, the idea of the candidate, the messenger mattering. Hmm. She could be somebody who could be a really effective voice about uh, safety on the border, about immigration. This woman who has a Latina background, still having a more hard line. Maybe that resonates in a district that is you know, pretty close to the to the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, there is, of course, Matt Gunderson as well, who is also spending quite a bit of money. And so there's a healthier competition on the Republican side to see who comes out. I think Matt Levin is sitting, holding back, sitting on a lot of money that he's uh, that he's accumulated and just waiting to see what's waiting for him on the other side of March. And Marisa, you got to think if that's a close one on election night, it could be a very bad night for Democrats nationally, right? Because, you know, th- that is not one that they're really f- worrying about particularly. No, but again, it's a long road to, from here to November. We'll see who kind of comes out of that and, and how you know, how the, how much fundraising they can do. As you mentioned, one of the leading candidates is self-funding largely. Um, you know, that is something that can help and spell success or not if you can't actually get other donor dollars and whether or not the parties decide to play in it, right? I mean, I think we'll have to take a look at what 
what they're doing, how much they're focusing on it, if they actually see an opening there. All right. We are going to leave it right there. Melanie Mason from Politico. Maurice Lagos from KQD. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Scott. And that is a wrap for Wednesday, February 21st. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Randal Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.